I like certainty. I like control. And I've got none of it. God has a lot of it. Well, I've got very little. So I'm learning to live into that. Uh, today, I told you earlier, that the, kind of the welcome, that the goal for today is to kind of step out of the chaos and the fear and the anxiety and step into faith, to step into peace, to step into the confidence, not that we have in anything going on in our world or what people are telling us, but in what God tells us and who God is and what that means for us as his people. Um, I don't know what the next couple of weeks are going to look like in, in our country, in our church, in our state, any of that. Um, I think it's going to be different than any of us expected a month ago. Uh, I think we've got a few weeks ahead of us that are going to look pretty different than normal. Um, unless, and maybe this will be an opportunity for us to kind of learn and grow as a, a body of believers, unless you're one of our shut-ins. If you're one of the shut-ins at Northwest, the next month for you is going to look just like the last six months. And, and so one of the things that I want you to kind of be thinking about uh, in two or three days or two or three weeks when you're sitting at home and you're thinking to yourself, if I have to look at these same walls and same faces for one more day, I'm going to lose my mind. That might be a good time for you to send a card to a shut-in. Say, boy, I was thinking about you today. I appreciate your faith in tough times because I'm struggling to keep mine in these tough times. It's really an incredible opportunity. Maybe a good thing that comes out of the next couple weeks of us being shut in our homes or whatever it ends up looking like is an opportunity to empathize and connect to uh, what a lot of our sick and, and shut-ins go through every single day. Maybe new ministry comes out of the ashes of suffering and struggling and frustration. I don't know. Uh, but, but this morning, as we think about what it's going to look like to live through fear and anxiety and and Yes, I'm preaching this sermon in the shadow of coronavirus and, and what's going on and the fear that comes with that. But I don't think it's helpful for us to pretend that fear is new to our society. Um, there are so many entities, um, political parties, news channels, uh, newspapers, uh, even preachers that are playing on fear. There's so many people in our world, uh, social media, I mean, you just name it. Fear is what gets attention. Attention is what gets eyeballs. Eyeballs is what sells ads and revenue. We're in a world that is profiting uh, from our anxiety. And we're more than willing to play along. And, and so I want to speak into that kind of collective crisis that we're living in today where fear and anxiety rule the day. Um, and I want to begin by sharing with you a, a fairly lengthy section, not too long, but uh, from a psychologist named Steven Pinker. And he did a TED Talk a couple years ago. Uh, it was really kind of popular a couple years ago to talk about how uh, the year 2016 was the worst period, year period, ever period. A lot of people didn't like 2016. A lot of anxiety and frustration and animosity uh, were going on. Uh, there, many people uh, faced news then with trepidation and dread. Every day we read of shootings, inequality, pollution, dictatorship, war, and the spread of nuclear weapons. And Steven Pinker did a TED Talk where he's arguing that maybe the world's not as bad as we've come to collectively believe it is. And so I want to give you his data-driven analysis. Uh, many people were left longing for earlier decades when the world seemed safer, cleaner, and more equal. 
But is this a sensible way to understand the human condition in the 21st century? After all, as Franklin Pierce Adams pointed out, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. You can always fool yourself into seeing a decline if you compare bleeding headlines of the present with rose-tinted images of the past. What does the trajectory of the world look like when we actually measure well-being over time using a constant yardstick or several constant yardsticks? So let's actually compare recent data on the present with the same measures of 30 years ago. Last year, this is going back to, to 2018 uh, and comparing it to the year 1988. Last year, Americans killed each other at a rate of 5.3 per thousand, had 7% of their citizens in poverty, and emitted 21 million tons of particulate matter and 4 million tons of sulfur dioxide. But 30 years ago, instead of 5.3, the homicide rate was 8.5. The poverty rate, instead of 7%, 30 years ago was 12%. We emitted 35 million and 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide significantly more 30 years ago than we did two years ago. What about the world as a whole? Maybe the year 1988 was just particularly unusual. Last year, the world had 12 ongoing world wars, 60 autocracies, 10% of the world population was in extreme poverty, and there were more than 10,000 nuclear weapons. But 30 years ago, there were 23 wars, 85 autocracies, 37% of the world population in extreme poverty, and more than 60,000 nuclear weapons, six times more than there are today. True, last year was a terrible year for terrorism in Western Europe with 238 deaths, but in 1988 there were 440. When you actually go to the data, beginning with the most precious thing of all, life, what do we see in human history? Throughout human history, life expectancy at birth was around 30 years old. Today, it's more than 70. In the developed parts of the world, more than 80. 250 years ago, in the richest countries of the world, a third of the children did not live to see their fifth birthday. A third of kids didn't live to be five. before the risk was brought down 100-fold in developed countries today. Today, that fate befalls less than 6% of children in the poorest countries of the world, much less than one-third. Famine is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It can bring devastation to any part of the world, but today famine has been banished to the most extreme and war-ravaged regions of the world. 200 years ago, 90% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today, fewer than 10% do. For most of the human history, the powerful states and empires were pretty much always at war with each other, and peace was a mere break and interlude between wars. Today, they are really never at war with each other. The last great power war pitted the United States against China 65 years ago. More recently, wars of all kinds have become fewer and less deadly. The annual rate of war has fallen from about 22 per 100,000 per year in the early 50s to 1.2 today. Democracy has suffered setbacks in several countries around the world, yet the world has never been more democratic than it has been in the last decade, with two-thirds of the world's populations living in democracies. 
Homicide rates plunge whenever anarchy and the code of vendetta are replaced by the rule of law. It happened when feudal Europe was brought under the control of centralized kingdoms. So that today, a Western European has 135th the chance of being murdered compared to his medieval ancestors. It happened again in colonial New England in the American Wild West when the sheriffs moved to town and in Mexico. I like that in my sermon today I got to make a reference to when the sheriffs moved to town. <laughs> in reality, we've become safer in almost every way. Over the last century, we've become 96% less likely to be killed in a car crash, 88% less likely to be hit on the sidewalk, 99% less likely to die in a plane crash, 95% less likely to be killed on the job, 89% less likely to be killed by the so-called act of God, such as drought, flood, wildfire, storm, volcano, landslide, earthquake, or meteor strike. And what about the quintessential act of Zeus? The projectile hurled to the, hurled to the earth by Zeus himself, you are in fact 97% less likely to be killed by a bolt of lightning than 100 years ago. Isn't that good news? Do all of these gains in health, wealth, safety, knowledge, and leisure make us any happier? The answer is yes. It's yes. In 86% of the world's countries, happiness is on the increase in recent decades. You know, a tabulation of the positive and negative emotion words in news stories, and here's where all of a sudden you kind of go, well, it sounds like things are going great. What's the problem? Why are we so anxious and fearful all the time? Well, if you do research and add up the number of positive and negative emotion words in news stories, newspapers, news channels, social media, what you will find is that during these decades in which humanity has gotten healthier, wealthier, wiser, safer, safer and happier, that the New York Times and other newspapers of the world and news outlets of our country and the world have become increasingly depressing and morose, chronicling all of the tragedies as they've gotten steadily glummer. News is about stuff that happens, not stuff that doesn't happen. It's the nature of news. You will never see a journalist who says, I'm reporting live from a country that's been at peace for 40 years. <laughs> You'll never see a reporter at a city that has not been attacked by terrorists. Here I am in Oklahoma City, a city that has not been attacked by terrorists in recent memory. Just thought you should know. Do... Uh, Bad things can happen quickly, but good things aren't built in a day, so they don't make catchy headlines. So papers could have run the headline, 137,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, and they could have run that headline every day for the last 25 years. But you don't read about it. That's one and a quarter billion people leaving poverty behind them. We don't hear that story. The news capitalizes on our morbid interest in what can go wrong. And it's captured in the programming policy, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, if you combine our mental cognitive biases with the nature of news, you can see why the world has been coming to an end for a very long time. Coming to an end, isn't it, Alton? 
You know, what's interesting is that Steven Pinker, who's presenting this data, is not a person of faith. In fact, you can also go look up other stuff that he's done online where he argues uh, that the arguments of science and humanism have completely undercut the claims of religion and scripture and the major world religions in the world today. We don't have a need for them anymore. And I mentioned to you the research that he's done on the reasons that we should be optimistic about the course and track of humanity and the way that things are actually getting better while we feel like they're getting worse because I think it is remarkable that someone that does not believe that God is involved in the world and that God works through his people, someone that doesn't have faith in that has greater optimism and hope in the direction of the world than we who do believe in Jesus Christ and him resurrected. Isn't that convicting? Isn't it convicting that, that he, without hope, that God's Spirit works in us and through us to bring God's good creation continually into the world, that he has greater expectations of what we can do than we do? We who believe in a good God who made a good and beautiful creation. Today, in the midst of all that's going on, and certainly there's a lot that's going on, I want to invite you out of the darkness and the fear and in the anxiety that our world runs on. I want to invite you into the peace of God. You've already heard my opening invitation out of anxiety, and it starts with letting the actual data, the actual facts of our world give you a little bit of a, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was. That's kind of, that feels good. It feels good to know that we live in a good world. And if uh, you need reassurance, you need to know right now, you are not living in the worst year in human history. That's just the facts. It's just the facts. This is not the worst year ever. We live in a good and beautiful world created by a good and beautiful God who continues to do good and beautiful things through His Spirit-filled people. Surely that gives us hope. Surely that gives us peace. But I'll tell you, if you only dwell by filling your ears, your eyes, and your mind with the fear, the anxiety, and the world that we are forced to stare at in the news and media without giving yourself a break, you will never see the good and beautiful stuff that God is filling this world with. You will be blind to it. I want us to go to Psalm 46. I want us to go to Psalm 46. We've got it up here on the screen. I've added some lines in italics that you will notice are not in the scripture themselves. I want to invite you here in just a second to read together the section which is the scripture. And the section that's the scripture is in the left. I'm going to add in a reader response on the right. And so as you read, when you hit the break, I'm going to ask you a question over and over again so that you can hear the question that we as Christians need to be asking in, in light of the promises that God makes to be our refuge and our strength and our source of life and confidence in the world that we live in today. So we'll read together the scripture and I will give you a question and you will respond to my questions with scripture. And so together we read, God is our refuge and strength 
an ever-present help in trouble, what are you afraid of? afraid of? Then what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of? Certainly, we have nothing to be afraid of. I want to invite you for just a moment into the last lines of this psalm, a psalm of confidence, of courage, of, of, of trusting that even in a time of uncertainty, we can have certainty and courage because of who God is and who we are in Him. And so as we look at the end of this, this psalm, I want to invite you to do exactly what God commands in the last stanza here. I want you to be still and know God. I want you to exalt him among the nations and exalt him in all the earth. And the, the instruction here is that we do that by being still and knowing God in his peace-filled presence. And in a minute, as we silently have this moment of silence, as we do what this psalm invites us to do together in this room, I want you to exalt him by silently listing your blessings, your victories, the endless things that you have to be thankful to God about even in the last week. So I want to read this, and we're going to have just a minute of silence as you remember all the good things God's given you. He says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. About the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to any of his followers who had ears to hear, Therefore I do not, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? That's right. A few verses later, he added, And your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But first, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What are you worried about? Let me tell you this. If you're in Christ... Do you know that the worst thing that any virus can do to you? If you're in Jesus Christ, you need to hear this. If you're in Jesus Christ, do you know the worst thing a virus can do to you? It can put you to sleep for a few minutes, and you wake up next to Jesus. It's the worst it can do. It's the worst it can do. And I know that there's a, there's a different caveat to that fear and that anxiety if you're a parent. And, and I've had to grapple with, with this myself spiritually at times. Um, you know, if you're a parent, this is, this is really the hardest thing for me. Uh, I find myself asking, what happens to my kids if something does happen to me? Um, I got panicked asking this question uh, during some really fun airplane turbulence on a flight that I was on last year. Uh, I just started asking myself this question over and over again. And I, and I was really getting very uncomfortable. Um, Dennis, you're an airplane pilot. You probably never experienced this, but when planes start bouncing, I get airplane sweats. Um, you're going to talk about feeling out of control. Um, it's, it's, I don't like the feeling. But I started asking myself over and over again, what happens to my kids if something were to happen to me today? And, and here's what I received, and I want to give this to you today, is because when I was panicking on that plane, asking those questions, I got two answers. The first one is this is that this panic and fear makes me think that this means that I think I'm more in control of my kids' well-being than God is. Ouch is right. God said, do you, do you really believe that you're more in control of your kids' success and well-being in their lives and in this world than I am? And I had to say, no. I trust you, God. And the second one is this, and it's similar, but it, it has echoed in my heart and my mind more in the years since then, is this, that that panic means that I think that I love my kids more than God does, and that I know what's good for them more than God does. And it's one thing for me to say, I trust God with worrying about my life, that he'll be in control and that he'll take care of me. It's a different level of anxiety to say that I trust God with my kids' lives and that he'll take care of them but I've got to believe that. And so it, for me, this is my greatest fear and anxiety. And if I can give even that to God, then what is there to worry about or to be afraid of? So we stop worrying. And we live into God's peace because it is a good and beautiful world filled with God's good and beautiful spirit-filled people. And God remains 
in control. C.S. Lewis wrote 72 years ago about living in the shadow of an atomic bomb and the fear that it induced and brought into the entire world. Uh, this month, we seem to be living in the shadow of a global pandemic. Uh, but if we switch out a few words, I believe that it makes his writing then about the fear that the world was stricken with at that time very relevant to the fear that we've been stricken with today in a way that should lead us to greater confidence in faith. Lewis wrote, In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age or in the year of a pandemic, we might ask today? I'm tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed, as you've lived already living in an age of cancer an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented or coronavirus took hold in our world. Quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors and aesthetics, but we still have that. It's perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. This is the first point to be made for my sermon. It's, in fact, the last. The first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking all the time about bombs, or in our case, a virus. They may break our bodies, and then he insightfully, parenthetically noted, but even a microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. I think we're about to have, these are my words, not his now, I think we're about to have a lot of time at home. That's my guess. Don't get consumed with fear. Don't forget to turn off the TV and your phones and the news and sit in God's good presence. Be still and know that God is God. Lean into God's peace. Give him your gratitude, your trust, and your worries. Don't get me wrong. Be cautious and safe. Make healthy choices in the weeks to come, but do not give in to fear and worry. Be strong and courageous and do not be afraid because the Lord goes with you each and every day. Be anxious for nothing. God's in control. 
And if you're in Christ, there's nothing to be afraid of. If you're not, and you need to respond to the call, if you need to do that today or respond uh, to this invitation in any other way, please come forward this morning while we stand and sing.